0: Good morning, everybody. And, uh, we'll finish up the first chapter and start on Chapter 2. Okay, and in going through the different realms in Chapter 2, we start with the upper realms. So you can learn all about the god realms, which you don't really want to be born into uh, if you're actually seeking liberation and full awakening, because it's very easy to get... Uh, kind of distracted by the happiness there. Okay, so let's uh, do the visualization for Taking Refuge and Generating Bodhicitta. Let's generate our motivation. Often, when we think about the dukkha of sentient beings, we think about the dukkha of pain, and we want to alleviate it, and that is important. But what we often don't think about is the dukkha that arises from having wrong views. For example, uh, not believing in rebirth or not believing in the functioning of cause and, and effect or specifically not believing in the law of karma and its results. And although that kind of suffering that comes from these views, we don't see it, it doesn't strike us as the intense physical or mental suffering that is associated with the dukkha of pain behind these views. Uh, There's ignorance and there's often anger. So some people may just have never heard other views, other ways of seeing things, so they've never really uh, had a chance to examine their own views. And other people have heard correct views and then just said, well, I can't believe that. And that's quite different than saying, I don't understand it right now, so I'm putting it on the back burner and I'll come back to it later. But when we make a firm decision, I just will not, cannot accept that. We get locked into uh, a position, and it's hard for us to hear other uh, perspectives on that issue. And sometimes, like I said, there's anger behind those views, or uh, some emotional content behind them, too. So that is dukkha. And it's uh, that kind of dukkha. It's Actually, it's the cause of dukkha, because it fits into afflictions. Um, That's quite serious, because when we have those views, especially when there's some emotion supporting them, then sometimes, not always, but sometimes our uh, ethical conduct suffers because of it. So we want for ourselves to try and maintain an attitude of open-mindedness. That's one of the qualities of a suitable uh, student of the Dharma. And when we meet other people who have those kind of ideas, who might be family or very dear friends, to have a sense of compassion for them because they're suffering from that kind of mental rigidity that will not serve them well in the long term. And so from our side, let's do our best to really try and understand the teachings well. So that we don't fall into those kind of views and we maintain an open attitude and use our intelligence to really think deeply about things. And in that way, may we ascertain what to abandon and what to practice correctly and then go about doing that for the benefit of all living beings. And so with that, we generate bodhicitta. Someone once came to see me, and I think it was her—one of her parents who had died. And uh, she was grieving the loss of somebody she cared about. And she said to me, you know, Buddhism, the Buddhist view is not very consoling when somebody you love dies. And I said, "Uh, please explain. I didn't understand that. And she said, well, when you believe that there's an external creator who, uh, you know, makes things happen in the world uh, and who is, you know, governs the, the death and life of living beings, then when a dear one dies, yeah, you know that there was a reason behind it uh, that the creator wanted that. And now your loved one has gone to heaven to be with the creator. And there you don't have to worry about them. You know, they're in a better place than they were when they were alive. And I listened to that. And this was somebody who had been studying at the Dharma group that I was teaching for quite a while. Yeah? But... Uh, when what did they say? When the mm hits the fan, um, what, what came up offering solace to her was the religion she'd grown up in, even though she uh considered herself a Buddhist now, yeah. So she was trying to mm, put the two together, yeah. And then I met, uh, you know, I had another friend who really had studied the Dharma quite a bit. And when his loved one died, it came out that he just didn't believe in the law of karma <laughs> in effect because he couldn't explain his loved one's death as uh, a result of previously created negative karma, and instead was quite angry, I think, uh, because he didn't see any reason for her to die uh, young, yeah? And got quite stuck in in that attitude, yeah? Even though, you know, knowing a lot. Uh, so these two experiences really emphasize to me, um, the importance of, you know, thinking about what we learn and the different views that we learn and checking them out and really using reasoning to see how they make sense. And not only that, but applying them to our lives because when we think about our own losses, for example, in light of the Buddha's teachings on emptiness or the Buddha's teachings on karma, if we think about those teachings correctly, uh, it helps us deal with loss in our life. At least, that's been my experience. Apparently, for others, it doesn't help them deal with their loss. Yeah, it makes them either confused or angry or something else. Uh, but the, the key, again, is to think about these things before you're in the, the actual situation, yeah? So that your mind is already familiar with these views. And if, you know, you think, well, I don't know about all this, and you have a lot of doubts. You've worked a lot on it beforehand, yeah. So then, when a dear one dies, uh, your mind doesn't just react with, you know, I want solace, or uh, you know, this has, you know, you're angry at the world because they died. Okay. So this whole thing of of uh, preparing our minds before difficulties strike, okay? So I know for myself, you know, from the very beginning times when I started uh, hearing about death in Buddha's teachings, which I personally found as an incredible relief that finally I knew people who were willing to talk about death because the environment I grew up in was... Don't talk about death, because if you do, it might happen. As if not talking about it meant it won't happen. Okay? So I was like, oh, finally, there's people who are not afraid of this. I was really relieved. Yeah. And so I began contemplating the death of the people I really cared about. Not just death in an abstract, but the death of these specific people and uh, thinking about my own death, too. And I found that this has been uh, very, very helpful in my life because when people did die, I had already thought about it and I had adjusted my mind bef- while they were still alive to the fact that we would be separated and that sometime, you know, Uh, they would die or I would die or something. And so it helped me mm, settle in my mind any conflicting emotions about those people uh, because who wants to have those emotions when somebody is dying or after they die? You know, it's better to settle it now. So I've always found that extremely helpful. So, uh, you know, so really seeing that, uh, you know, the views we have can, can, uh, because we usually think of views as, well, they're just views, they're not emotions. But they can really influence how we feel and how we act. Yeah. Uh, So it's important not just to work on the afflictions that are emotions, but the afflictions that are views as well. Okay. So that's one of the things that we're working on as we go through the 16 attributes. Yeah. We're coming across, uh, many different views of, the, of the four truths and, uh, And trying to work on them because we may have some of these views, yeah. So it's 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 quite helpful because it's difficult to really practice something if you don't fully believe that worldview. Yeah, it's difficult because your mind is always going, well, but this this this, you know. Instead of being able to, to stay with, uh, that worldview and, and what it entails. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I remarked before that when people, uh, who are not familiar with Buddhism, when they suffer loss and they say, why did my dear one die? I don't start teaching them karma at that point. Okay, that's not the time when they are open and receptive to hearing it. Okay. Yeah. I've made that mistake two times. I will not make it again. <laughs> okay. Because often w- when somebody is grieving and they say, why did they die? They don't really want to reason. Yeah. What they—it sounds like they want a reason, but they don't want a reason. What they want is acknowledgement of their pain, and uh, and to be consoled because they're in pain um, from their loss. Now, as Buddhists, we we may know the loss was due to attachment, but we don't tell them that at that time. Okay, we uh instead listen and affirm that you know yes when you care somebody about somebody deeply you know this is the kind of way most people feel and and what you're feeling is natural and most people feel like that and then we help them through the grief yeah when they're they've gone through the grief somewhat and they become interested in the dharma then we can start talking about karma and so on. Okay? But the timing of uh, what you teach who when is very important. Okay? Otherwise, people can get very upset. Yeah? And the upsetness comes from misinterpreting what the Buddha was saying. Yeah? Yeah? The upsetness isn't because uh, they're just pushing back against something they know it's true; it's they're misinterpreting it. Okay, so I'll tell you one of the times when I blew it and said, started to explain. You know, so do you remember after the Lockerbie plane? The plane was shot down over Lockerbie uh, in Scotland and there were a lot of students from um, was the university of Syracuse yeah many students who were coming home from that and uh and everybody in the plane was killed you know it was a horrible tragedy it was an act of terrorism as they found out later from Libya um and Gaddafi so uh but Sometime after that happened, I was uh, on a tour in the States, and I was asked to speak at the University of Syracuse to a group of people. And one of the questions they had was, how do you explain something like the Lockerbie uh, Act uh, according to Buddhism? So I started talking about karma wrong thing to say. Because what they heard, which was not what I was saying, and certainly not what the Buddha meant when he talked about karma, was that Their loved ones, the people they care about, were bad people because they created negative karma in a previous life. So therefore, they were not only bad, but they deserved what happened to them. I tried to to explain, no, that's not what I meant. We're not saying people are bad people. We're not Saying anybody deserves to, to suffer. Nobody deserves to suffer. We're just talking about plain old cause and effect. But they couldn't get beyond the judgment aspect that they were imputing on it. So I learned that that was the first time I did it. I did it another time. <sighs> yeah. So I'm warning you. Don't do that. It doesn't help people. Okay. Um, uh but instead just offer, you know, kind of affirm, yes, when we uh, a dear one dies, actually, I think we're grieving for the future that we thought we were going to have that now we're not going to have. Okay. But uh, as Buddhist practitioners, if we think about the death of our loved ones, you know, and even imagine it, visualize what they look like and so on. It really helps when they actually die because your mind is somehow prepared for it. Yeah? And uh, and then your mind doesn't get all wacky. Okay? So you may say, "Ooh, I don't want to think about that, it's too painful. Yeah? But It's reality, isn't it? Yeah, it's reality that either they're going to die first or we're going to die first, or something else will happen to separate us. And that's the reality, yeah? It's our attachment that makes reality difficult. It's not that reality itself is difficult. It's that our mind craves and clings to our view of how we think things should be. Yeah. So you, you continue to see that it's craving and ignorance and clinging that are the source of the dukkha. Yeah. Not other people. Not you know, uh, some unfair situation. So, yes, you know, when things happen to us personally, because we all will go through difficult times, yeah. It's very natural. No fortune teller needs to tell you that. This is the nature of samsara. We will go through difficult times. Okay? We're samsaric beings. It will happen. But the more we can adjust how we see things to the Buddhist view so that we reduce our craving and clinging, we reduce our unrealistic expectations for what the future should be. When we reduce these mental things in our own mind, then it's much easier to accept what happens to us in life. We still may not like it, but it's easier to accept it. And if we're really a good practitioner, we may even see the advantage of the difficulties we go through because they're helping us to purify negative karma we otherwise wouldn't have purified, and because they show us very explicitly where our minds are stuck, where we do not want to accept impermanence, where we refuse to acknowledge that clinging and craving and attachment are the source of dukkha. Difficulties show us very clearly. Okay. So if you, if you don't practice, then you hate difficulties. If you're a practitioner, then you say, Oh, this is an opportunity for me to really grow. Yeah. So sometimes difficulties happen and our instant reaction is, this is unfair and why me and all this. But then if you remember, oh yeah, in the thought training, they talked about how bodhisattvas practice. And they talked about how I can look at adversity and take it as something into the path. So that does exist. Now, what was it that I heard in that teaching? Where are those notes that I wrote that I never read again? <laughs> yeah. And you go back and you refresh your mind. Better yet is you've actually thought about the notes since then and meditated on them. So there, it isn't like, oh, yeah, I remember. It's like okay, here it is, time for me to practice this thought training technique that I, you know, I've practiced before. And these techniques, they're not just techniques. You really begin to see how they're true, you know, how they're true. That, yeah, adversity can be beneficial. Oh, my God, you know, that's not what I grew up thinking but it actually is true. Yeah. Okay. So let's start looking at what may be some of our wrong views about the true path. Okay. So the first uh, one, the whiz- and so this taught again from the Prasangika perspective. The wisdom directly realizing selflessness is the path because it is the unmistaken path to liberation. This sounds a lot like the one for true cessation, doesn't it? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's the path because it's the unmistaken path. But, you know, if you don't realize it's the unmistaken path, how are you going to know it's the path? So don't ask me that question, because I, I have the same question. Okay. But this wisdom does lead to liberation. And how do we know that? Well, when we've meditated on the previous 12 attributes of those three noble truths, you know, we've come to understand the Buddha's worldview better. Yeah. And when you have a good idea of what ignorance is, and then you know the opposite that strikes it head on is wisdom, and when you know that ignorance is responsible for all your dukkha, then when ignorant, you know that when ignorance is destroyed, your dukkha is not going to be there. So then that. Wisdom that destroys the dukkha can become, you know that, to be an unmistaken path. Okay? So knowing this counters the misconception that there is no path to liberation from samsara. People who believe no path exists will not venture to cultivate it and will remain endlessly trapped in cyclic existence. Okay. So we may understand, yes, there's true dukkha. Yes, there's the cause of it. You know, we may even understand, yes, there's true cessation, but there's no way to get there. Okay. There's, there's no way to get there. Again, you know, maybe because, uh, the afflictions are hardwired in us. So it's possible to eliminate them or, uh, you know, any path you, May practice leads you in the wrong direction, or you know, various kinds of misunderstandings there. Okay, but believing that uh, not only is there a path, but that wisdom re- directly realizing emptiness is that path, that is very very important. Because if we don't understand that, then we're not going to meditate on emptiness because we're not going to see the value of gaining a realization of it. But if we do understand this, this point, then, you know, we will put energy into, uh, trying to understand emptiness and, and meditating on it. Okay, then the second, the wisdom directly realizing selflessness is suitable because it acts as the direct counterforce to the afflictions. Okay, so it isn't just a path, but it's the direct counterforce. Okay, so the wisdom realizing selflessness is the suitable path leading to nirvana, because it is the powerful antidote that directly counteracts self-grasping ignorance and eliminates the dukkha that arises from that ignorance. Understanding this eliminates the misconception that this wisdom is not a path to liberation. Okay? So through the first one, you're seeing, oh, there is a path to liberation. and but you may, and and you've said, oh yeah, well this is the path in the first. But then you may say, well I'm not so sure if it is the path. Okay, so this one counteracts that. Okay, having confidence that it is the correct path to Nirvana, we will uh, be eager to cultivate the wisdom that knows the nature of bondage in and release from Samsara, just as they are. This wisdom also knows the faults of the afflictions and the meaning of selflessness. Okay, so this wisdom is is quite important, you know. It's it's not just knowing that there is a path to eliminate it. It's what is the correct path, you know, and that this wisdom will actually function to uh, destroy the self-grasping. Where we have to really exert some energy here, at least what I found, is really understanding, first of all, why ignorance is a wrong view. Because we're so used to seeing things through ignorance that we don't question how we perceive things or how we think about them. We just automatically accept things exist the way they appear to us. So the first thing is to question that. Okay? And then the second thing is how does just assenting to that appearance and therefore grasping at things as existing as they appear to me, how does that give birth to the other afflictions? Okay. So how afflictions create karma, I think, at least for me, that part is e- much easier because I can see when afflictions arise in my mind, I do all sorts of ridiculous, stupid, harmful things. But why ignorance, you know, lies behind the afflictions, that is harder. And why ignorance is actually ignorant instead of the correct way that things exist. That one's even harder. Okay, so we have to work on those two things. Okay, then the third one, the wisdom directly realizing selflessness is accomplishment because it unmistakably realizes the nature of the mind. So not only is it the path, not only is it the um, direct counterforce, okay, but it unmistakably realizes the nature of the mind. Okay? So there's no, no uh, kind of misconceptions or misunderstandings in this wisdom. So unlike worldly paths, okay, so here's contrasting this wisdom with worldly paths. So worldly paths, for example, generating um, deep states of samadhi that will cause rebirth in the form and formless realms, those are very good, they're virtuous minds, but they're still worldly because they lead to rebirth in samsara. So unlike worldly paths or or maybe you you could have here um, uh, the Buddhist version of Prosperity Christianity, you know, um, has Prosperity Buddhism. Um, You know, if you don't know what Prosperity Christianity is, it's uh, often what they teach in these big mega churches, that if you just believe in God then you will be rich. You will have all sorts of good things happen to you in this life. Yeah, you will prosper in this life. So it hangs out the uh, reward of worldly pleasure as a reason for uh, if you just believe in God. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So this uh, precious wisdom, directly realizing emptiness, leads to unmistaken spiritual attainments because it is an exalted wisdom that directly realizes the final mode of existence of the mind, its emptiness of inherent existence. So it isn't just realizing some superficial nature of the mind or the conventional nature of the mind, it's actually realizing how the mind actually exists, ultimately, the final mode of existence, okay? So in this way, uh, this wisdom accomplishes the eradication of afflictions and the attainment of liberation understanding this counteracts the misconception that worldly paths eliminate dukkha so yesterday we talked about how if you uh, actualize these very deep states of samadhi it's easy to mistake them for liberation so this is you know you you miss um, you have the mistaken notion that these worldly paths you know, our liberation. Or maybe you don't even know that liberation, uh, um, you don't know what liberation is, so you think that uh, suppressing the afflictions is liberation. Okay, so different ways that you can kind of misunderstand this. So blissful as they may be, these deep meditative absorptions, do not secure a true state of liberation. Some people practice the worldly path of extreme asceticism, mistakenly believing that harsh treatment of the body will eliminate craving for pleasure. This method does not bring the desired result, as the Buddha attested to by practicing and then relinquishing Tortu- tortuous asceticism for six years. Yeah. So the Buddha, before he crossed the river and went to sit under the Bodhi tree, he, uh, together with five companions who later became his first five disciples, but at that time they were just the, the six people, all uh, wandering ascetics, uh, who who um, ate one grain of rice a day who, you know, didn't sleep, who really tortured the body, because, uh, at that time in India, uh, there was a lot of you that, you know, yes, attachment to the body, is is difficult, and it makes us, you know, it's clinging, and it makes us do uh, non virtuous actions. So the way to get rid of that attachment to the body is to torture the body and make it as uncomfortable as possible, because then we will give up clinging to the body. Okay. So this kind of view was prominent in India at that time. It was also prominent in Christianity, and you have all these ascetic. Kind of practices beating yourself with a, with a, a horsehair whip or whatever. I read a book many years ago by Karen Armstrong, who has since really uh, changed her view and become an, an incredible the, the, theologian. Yeah. But at that time, she uh, ordained I'm not sure as an if it was as an Episcopalian or a Catholic nun, but in Britain, and they had to do these kind of ascetic practices, and you know she was or she had to eat food that made her sick. Um, She had to do many activities that didn't make much sense, and um, you know, and the self-flagellation and this kind of thing. And she describes it in the book, and um, and how she eventually had to see that that wasn't helping her, uh, and it wasn't helping the people, the other nuns around her who were doing it. Okay, so she gave that kind of practice up. So this same, a similar kind of thing happened with the Buddha, for he was doing that with his friends for for many many years, and then finally he said, you know my meditation is not progressing from doing this. Yeah, So he left his five friends and started wandering, and he sat beneath a tree to uh, meditate. And uh, one Indian uh, villager, uh, a young woman named Sujata, saw him and thought that he was the tree god for that tree. And wanted to make offerings to him. So she brought this um, milk right, you know, rice with milk in it, and offered that, and he ate that and his body regained strength. And that's when he crossed the river and went to sit under the Bodhi tree. Um, but his friends, when they heard that he did this, just said, oh, Gautama, what a big flake he is, you know. He's just overwhelmed by attachment, and he ate this porridge, and, you know, hopeless. Um, Yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. But that's why in uh, in Tibetan monasteries now, when they're having some big celebration, uh, they will often serve... Uh, rice with a little bit of milk, not tons of it, a little bit of milk and some raisins in. It was It's kind of symbolic of, of that offering that was first made to the Buddha. Okay, so that was the, the third uh, attribute. The fourth is the wisdom directly realizing selflessness is the way of deliverance because it overcomes afflictions and dukkha from their root and brings irreversible liberation. Okay? So it not only sees the ultimate nature of the mind as it is, but it also functions to overcome afflictions and dukkha. Because somebody could have the doubt of, well, you see the ultimate nature of the mind, but how does that actually help me get rid of my anger? Okay, so this is saying that it does, and it cuts them from the root, and it brings a state of liberation that you can never fall back from because the afflictions have been eradicated from the root. So inherent existence and non-inherent existence are contradictory. By realizing the lack of inherent existence, the ignorance that grasps inherent existence can be conclusively removed. Okay? When you have a wrong belief and you prove to yourself the opposite, there's no way that wrong belief can continue to stand. Okay? You may have to remind yourself again and again, you know, of what the truth is before the everything is, you know, totally eradicated. So this, but this wisdom is able to overpower ignorance because it knows things as they are, whereas ignorance relies on faulty fabrications. Yeah, it's kind of humbling to think that everything I think (laughs) and perceive relies on faulty fabrications. Yeah, when we when people used to come up, my generation of practitioners, uh, when we used to stumble up to Copan, after frequently frequenting uh, Freak Street, okay, and with all sorts of things that we really like there, um, and uh, and then would sit and listen to teachings, then so many people would, say, Lama, what do you think about taking drugs? Does that help your meditation? (laughs) And Lama Yeshe looked at us and he said, dear, you're already hallucinating. You don't need to take drugs. And what he was referring to is because we have this ignorance and things appear in a faulty manner to us and we agree with that faulty uh, appearance. And we grasp it as true, and we defend it. So we're already hallucinating. Why do we need to take drugs, you know? Everybody was really kind of uh, disappointed, you know? We were imagining doing the meditation on the Buddha, you know, while you take acid and, you know, there's the Buddha, that, you know, his yellow body is exceptionally radiating so many bodies of the Buddha, and it's so vivid, and, you know, that's how we were thinking, and uh, and then Lama just kind of uh, <laughs> put a big bucket of water on that one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, because it definitely abandons all dukkha and obscurations, this wisdom does not stop part way. So, it doesn't just eliminate part of the problem, okay? But definitively delivers us from cyclic existence. So, it doesn't just eliminate half the afflictions, okay? this attribute counteracts the misconception that afflictions can regenerate and cannot be removed completely. So if we haven't realized emptiness and we just suppress the afflictions, they definitely will regenerate. Okay? But that's because we haven't Found the, the correct counterforce that will obliterate the afflictions conclusively. Okay. So this wisdom also counteracts the mistaken notion that while some paths may partially seek dukkha, cease dukkha, no path can cease it completely. So that's false. There is a way to stop samsara. Contemplating these four attributes encourages us to meditate on true paths in order to destroy dukkha and its origins and to actualize nirvana. Okay, and then you have the chart below. And the chart, just some, you know, these four charts are just a simple summary, but you can. You know, when you're thinking about them, you have to think about why each one works, you know, what it actually means. Okay, then the reflection that you can use as a meditation also. So contemplate that true dukkha, everything produced by afflictions and polluted karma, lacks any inherent existence. Yeah. So first of all, we have to have an idea of what inherent existence is and what it means to lack it. So just, uh, you know, what we talked about yesterday, a correct assumption. Yeah. We may, when we initially counteract this, we may still be in wrong views and, you know, we're just edging towards the doubt inclined to the wrong view. But we have to start somewhere and, you know, continue... To understand this. Then two, contemplate that all dukkha, as well as the origins of dukkha, depend on causes. Because they are dependent and do not exist under their own power. True dukkha and true origins lack independent essence. So here, you know, we're we're kind of coming back and seeing, oh yeah. True dukkha, true origins, they aren't fixed and concrete. Yeah. They have causes. They have conditions. Yeah. What's the cause of my anger? You know, and then you, you start peeling away layers of the cause of your anger, the cause of your clinging. Okay. And you begin to see, oh yeah, my afflictions are dependent. And one of the big things they're dependent on is thinking that I exist inherently, and the situation exists inherently, and the people and objects in the situation exist inherently. And like, oh, this view is what really traps me. Okay, then contemplate the four attributes of true cessation. And abide in the certainty that nirvana, a lasting state of peace and joy, can be attained. And let your mind be imbued with the optimism that brings. Okay? So when we have a, a deep conviction that nirvana is possible, that dukkha is not a given, yeah, then... We, we realize that, you know, we're not, that samsara is, is not a given. It counter, it can be counteracted. Yeah. And so then we really start engaging in the path to try and overcome our samsara. This certainty, you know, that, uh, that liberation can be attained by realizing emptiness also helps us to have deeper compassion for sentient beings because we realize how much we and they suffer by grasping at an inherent existence. And that that suffering doesn't have to exist. It can be counteracted. There is a way out of the mess. Okay? So that Knowledge gives bodhisattvas tremendous courage and tremendous fortitude to hang in there and really work to benefit sentient beings because they know that the end to dukkha is possible. Okay? You'll remember when we studied um, uh, uh, the supplement to Nagarjuna's Treatise on the Middle Way, Teva's uh, Chandrakirti's, uh, Majamika Avatara. When we study the three kinds of compassion, that's the third kind of compassion. Okay? And then four, contemplate that true paths are also conditioned phenomena, meaning that they too lack inherent existence, and that they depend on other factors. They, too, do not exist from their own side, and thus are empty of inherent existence. So because true dukkha is empty, because true afflictions are empty, because true paths are empty, then practicing actualizing the true paths, realizing them, can counteract and demolish the true origins, and that means that the dukkha can be ceased. So it's because the very mode of existence of things is empty, of existing from its own side, that's what allows liberation to occur. Okay, If things did exist inherently, it would be impossible to attain liberation. Okay. Because if the afflictions were an inherent part of our mind, we could not eliminate them. If dukkha existed inherently, yeah, then it wouldn't depend on causes and conditions. So there would be nothing to do to eliminate our, our three kinds of dukkha. If the path existed inherently, yeah then uh you know it couldn't affect the afflictions it couldn't affect the ignorance because something that exists inherently is does not uh interrelate it cannot influence and be influenced by other phenomena yeah so here you begin to understand you know th- that because things are empty Samsara exists and nirvana exists, and it's possible to overcome samsara, possible to attain nirvana. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we, we, we like to think, you know, you can see here that when we say, oh, well, these things are empty, part of our mind recoils and goes, oh, does that mean they don't really exist? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but the true paths they have to exist. They have to really exist. Because if they don't really exist, how are they going to overcome the afflictions? And then we grasp them as that even the true paths, the liberating things, we grasp them as truly existent. Because if there weren't real true paths, then how could these real true afflictions be overcome, okay? So it's so difficult for us to think that things exist by being merely designated. and if they were didn't exist in that way, then samsara would couldn't be overcome. Yeah. So we see, you know, We see how we so instinctively go back to grasping, you know, I need something that is real. Okay, or maybe we go, well, okay, maybe maybe dukkha uh, is empty and afflictions are empty, but the path has to be real. Because if it exists only by mere designation, then it's going to vanish into empty space at any moment and it's not really existent, and then I'm going to lose the true path and be stuck in samsara. Are you getting an idea how, how our mind tricks us, you know? And it's like we meditate, yes, everything's empty, Everything yeah yes, sounds very good. Open our eyes, you know? So this is why it requires practice. So in conclusion, according to the Prasangika perspective, the entire complex of all sufferings and unsatisfactory circumstances of cyclic existence is rooted in self-grasping ignorance. This grasping at objective existence, that things have their own objective nature out there, okay, okay, This grasping underpins our emotional reactions, such as craving, anger, jealousy, arrogance, guilt, and so forth. Cultivating the view of emptiness undermines this grasping and overcomes the four distorted conceptions. So there is a direct connection between the understanding of emptiness on our day-to-day engagement with the world. So emptiness is not some far-out abstract thing that's an absolute entity existing in outer space somewhere, but we don't know where. Okay? Yeah. I have such vivid memories of Lama Yeshe going, emptiness exists right here in this table in yourself in everything it's not far away it's right here we just can't see it yet uh-huh. but so it's not to, like unrelated to our day-to-day life yeah it's Emptiness is, you know, is the ultimate nature of us and everything we interact with. While I have not realized emptiness directly, His Holiness says, um, I can assure you that as a result of cultivating and deepening an understanding of emptiness and familiarizing myself with this understanding over time, I can see a progressive reduction of the influence of the afflictions that usually dominate our ordinary minds. So he's saying, oh, I don't have any realizations. Of course, he never coped to that anyway. Yeah, but I can see that even thinking about this change, changes my perspective on life and loosens begins to loosen the afflictions. There is a real impact and transformative power in this practice. If you make sincere effort to study, contemplate, and meditate on emptiness, the four distorted conceptions will no longer be able to nourish afflictions in your mind. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? When your afflictions have been eliminated, engaging, engaging in polluted actions ceases. And with this rebirth due to afflictions and karma, comes to an end, and that is an upbeat end to chapter one, (laughs) yeah, and the picture on the next page, what's somebody doing? They're practicing, okay? They're they're not, uh, you know, smoking a joint, They're not going to the disco. They're not at the office working on the computer. So revolving in cyclic existence, the truth of dukkha. So now we're going into that. That that was the overview. Now we're going to have some chapters about the truth of dukkha. Then chapters about the truth of origins. Chapters about cessation, and you know, and so on. And the path has to wait until the next volume. OK, but uh, because we can't make the books too thick. Uh, but, uh, you know, now we're going into more depth on it. You had a question? The four distorted conceptions, are they different for each of the the, the truths? Or are they the, the same four distorted conceptions oh, applied? In- OK, At, actually, you could use when I use the term, I'm usually referring to the four that apply to true dukkha. But there are four distorted conceptions for each of the the truths. But usually when people talk about the four distorted conceptions, they're referring to seeing the impermanent as permanent, the ugly, you know, those four, okay? Anything else? Okay. So the four truths directly apply to our lives They lay out the framework for understanding our situation and our potential. Okay? So here you see, you know, because the four truths apply to our lives, we see that spiritual practice is not about going into some kind of lofty fantasy world. It's learning to see things clearly and accurately and of course that brings us into realms of consciousness we've never experienced before. Yeah. But it's the actual understanding of the truth of, of how things exist that enables it. It's not by pretending that, you know, dukkha doesn't exist and that all these things we don't like don't exist. And I just want light, love and bliss. It's about actually learning to see things clearly in our daily life. Okay. Having a... uh, Okay, so the four truths directly apply to our lives. They lay out the framework for understanding our situation and our potential. Having a general understanding of them, we will now go into more depth regarding each truth, beginning with the truth of dukkha, the unsatisfactory circumstances in which we are bound. These include the th- the three realms of samsaric existence into which we are born. Okay, because remember the realms are our body and mind, our aggregates, but they're also the habitat. Yeah. Um. So. Uh, so we. Uh, include the three realms of samsara existence, and we'll talk about the disadvantages of being born there and the value of our human lives that enable us to reverse this situation. So, first part, knowing dukkha for what it is. So here we go again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we meditated so much on dukkha before. It's like... Okay, I got through that, you know, like that's done. Like, like maybe the light, love, and bliss are coming, but no, it's knowing dukkha for what it is again. Okay, but you know, the way I was trained in the my fr- the first uh, courses I went to, it was so much eight worldly concerns and true dukkha again and again and again, and some bodhicitta and and, and other things. Well, you know. Yeah, I mean, not just some, that there's certainly enough bodhicitta, enough about emptiness, but again and again. And then over the years, I've seen that many of my, many teachers are teaching more and more tantra and not teaching these, you know, beginning essential teachings. And I've also seen how much, you know, eight worldly concerns and, and this stuff about true dukkha, how beneficial it was for my, for this to be hammered into my mind at the very beginning of my practice. You know, again and again and again, you know, my teacher spoke about it. And I went and thanked one of my primary teachers, um, you know, years later for doing this because I realized that it helped me to have a basis for practice, that the people who kind of didn't know much about this and went to Tantra, they didn't have that basis. Yeah. So I really uh, appreciated this. Even though at the time, oh, what, you know, the eight worldly, well, the teachings, we heard some of them during classes like this when we were sitting, you know, in the tent. You know, on the, the grass mats together with the fleas. Okay. The fleas heard these teachings with us. But in, in the meditation courses, the way they, I don't know if they still run them this way, but at that time it was a month long. And the first two weeks, you had three meals a day. The last two weeks, you only, you took the Mahayana precepts and you only ate lunch. Okay. And so Rinpoche would give the precepts every day for those two weeks. So he would um, start with the motivation, and then he would say, okay, now we're going to do the precepts, so everybody kneel and put your hands here, and then, you know, uh, we repeat after him the, the prayer of taking the precepts. But, so so he would say, okay, now we're going to do it, so kneel, and we'd all kneel, and then he'd think, of more things about the motivation that he wanted to tell us. So kneeling, this Tibetan style of kneeling is extremely uncomfortable. Okay. So you're sitting there. Well, you're not, you're crouched there and he's going on and on about the six kinds of dukkha and the three kinds of dukkha and the eight sufferings of the human realm. And you're going, yes, I realize (laughs) I am so uncomfortable. Please, can we take the precepts so I can sit down or stand up or get out of this position? Yeah. (laughs) So... You know, but you know, he would just go on teaching. He would do a motivation for a whole hour. So you're sitting there crouched for 45 minutes of the motivation that he started out, he did 15 minutes, then he did 45 minutes, you're crouched. Then he gives the ceremony. Okay, and he may stop in the middle of that to give you more motivation. And Yeah. So, so this makes you remember. (laughs) Yeah. But it makes you appreciate. Yeah. What, how you were trained at the very beginning. Yeah. It really helps you to appreciate that. Okay. So knowing dukkha for what it is. The Buddha said that true dukkha is to be known, true origins are to be eliminated, true cessations are to be actualized, and true paths are to be cultivated. In specifying that true dukkha is to be known, the Buddha was giving us an important message. Unless we identify the unsatisfactory circumstances that afflict us, we will never attempt to free ourselves from them. If we don't know we are ill, or if we deny the fact that we are, we will not go to the doctor, or we will not take the prescribed medicine. Meanwhile, an insidious disease will fester inside of us. Okay? So, you know, you have to recognize you're sick before you can start to recover. In spiritual practice, the first step is to identify true dukkha, the unsatisfactory situation in which we live. Once we know this, we will search out its causes, eliminate them by cultivating true paths, and actualize true cessations, the state of lasting peace and happiness that we want. When reflecting on the various types of dukkha, Keep in mind that the purpose is to generate the determination to be free from samsara and attain liberation. Seeing others' dukkha with compassion, we will want to help them attain liberation as well. Otherwise, there's no purpose to reflecting on suffering. So we don't reflect on suffering just because the heck of it, because we have nothing else to think about. Okay, there's a very specific purpose. And necessity. Having properly identified our dukkha, it is essential to cultivate the proper attitude towards us. Many of us, when confronted with pain or injustice, respond with anger or self pity. We try and blame someone else for our misery. Meditating on true dukkha involves taking responsibility for our situation and our problems, and dealing with them wisely. Not by saying, I don't want to listen to that, that's not true, that's not the way it is. You know, what do you use, you're some idiot, you're trying to manipulate me teaching like that. You know? But rather looking and checking, is this true? And if so, I need, are there something I can do about it and I have to take responsibility? We may think that we're already aware of our misery, so there's no need to contemplate it. Although we may be aware of our gross dukkha, we probably are not aware of dukkha's subtler levels. Until we recognize these, we won't seek to be free from them. So initial level practitioners identify the obviously painful suffering of unfortunate migrations, and its causes, destructive actions. They wish to attain a good rebirth. That's, you know, in the context of a uh, an initial level being, that would be like the cessation of suffering, you know, attaining a good rebirth. And they observe karma and its effects, which is like the true path for the initial level being. So it doesn't lead, it just leads to an upper rebirth, but it's within that context, okay? Okay, nevertheless, these people, um, the initial level practitioners, uh, do not yet understand the full meaning of dukkha, nor can they actualize the full cessation of all dukkha. Okay? So we may know the various divisions of dukkha into three, six, and eight types and have intellectual knowledge of them. But real understanding comes from observing our own experiences, our bodies and minds, our lives and our deaths. It involves facing the disparity between the belief that we are in control of our lives and the reality of what actually is. There's a big disparity there. When reflecting on dukkha, keep in mind that understanding dukkha and its origins is just the beginning. Buddha also taught the last two truths, directing us to the state of genuine peace and showing us the method to attain it. With those, we will have a complete picture. Okay? So whenever you're just looking at, you know, the the first two noble truths, you have to remember the last two. And then there's a quote from Buddha Gosa, one of the great uh, masters in the Pali tradition. He lives si- fifth century AD. The truth of dukkha should be regarded as a burden. The truth of origin as the taking up of the burden. The truth of cessation as the putting down of the burden and the truth of the path as the means to put down the burden. The truth of dukkha is like a disease. The truth of origin is like the cause of the disease. The truth of cessation is like the cure of the disease. And the truth of the path is like the medicine. So two very good analogies. And it can be very helpful to kind of Contemplate the analogies. Okay, so we'll close this morning.